welcome back to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole, and I am comfortably numb. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other stuff that doesn't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Also, go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other things that'll keep you busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Oh, I have, a, I have a cool trivia question for you. With the release of the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, okay, the song Bohemian Rhapsody has entered the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the third time, entering the chart at number 33. It was last on the chart in 1992 when it got a boost to the number two position from the film Wayne's World, and of course it charted on its original release in 1976 when it topped out at number nine. But there's another song by another artist which has reached the Hot 100 chart four times over the years. Name the song and the artist. Once again, Bohemian Rhapsody has charted three times. Name the song that's charted four times, and I will have the answer at the end of the show. In 1977, Pink Floyd released their 10th studio album titled Animals, and as bands do, they did a concert tour to support that album. This tour was formally titled the In the Flesh Tour, uh, but it's commonly known as the Animals Tour, and it was their first one that took place in very large venues such as stadiums, and there were aspects of it that the band especially disliked. In an interview with the Radio Times, songwriter and bass player Roger Waters said that he was especially upset that concerts, quote, became a social event rather than a more controlled and ordinary relationship between musicians and an audience. He also said the front 60 rows seemed to be screaming and shouting and rocking and swaying and not really listening to anything. And those further back could see bugger all anyway, unquote. Gerald Scarf writes that on the final date of the tour in Montreal, some of the fans irritated Waters so much that he actually spat at them. And at that same show, guitarist David Gilmore refused to play a final encore. He just sat at the soundboard and did nothing, which basically forced the rest of the band to improvise a slow blues bit. Later on that night, Waters spoke with uh, music producer Bob Ezrin and Ezrin's friend, who happened to be a psychiatrist, about a sense of alienation he was getting from playing the shows. He said something about wanting to build a wall across the stage between the performers and the audience. Well, after that tour, the band took a planned break from each other, and a couple of them worked on solo projects or helped with other musician stuff, and Roger Waters, in the meantime, started writing some songs that were inspired by the spitting incident. He conceived of a series of songs that chronicled the protagonist's growing isolation as a result of years of abusive or otherwise traumatic interactions between himself and the adult authority figures in his life. After about a year, the band reconvened to talk about their next project, and Waters had two concepts in mind. This was one of them, which had the working title Bricks in the Wall, and the other was a series of man's dreams. Uh, the band chose the first project, and the second one ultimately became Waters' solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Now, later that year, the band caught up in, uh, got caught up rather in some serious financial trouble when their financial planners made some risky investments that didn't go well, and while they weren't held responsible for the deals, they were still hit with a huge tax bill. David Gilmore became more personally involved with the business side of things, and so Roger Waters decided to bring someone in to help manage the album project. 
At his girlfriend's suggestion, he hired Bob Ezrin, who had previously worked with Lou Reed, Kiss, Peter Gabriel, and if you remember episode 49 of this show, Alice Cooper. And that's actually an important detail later on in this story. Now, Waters gave Ezrin a lot of latitude to work on the album, but he also noted that Ezrin wouldn't be getting any credit. But with Ezrin's input, Waters and Gilmore managed to both broaden and focus the story into less of an autobiography and more of a cohesive rock opera where a wall is built metaphorically by the music and literally during the show. Now, the storyline of the album is pretty straightforward. A character named Pink, who was based loosely on former band member Sid Barrett, loses his father during a war, and he starts to build a metaphorical wall around himself. He's oppressed by his mother, he's further tortured by abusive teachers, but he eventually becomes a rock star with the attendant accoutrement of sex, drugs, infidelity, and violence. At one point, Pink, realizing that his wife is being unfaithful to him, takes a groupie back to his hotel room, but he winds up in a rage, trashing the room and scaring her away. Shortly after this, the wall itself is complete, and he's thoroughly isolated from everyone. He becomes severely depressed, and it takes medical intervention to get him to perform on stage. Unfortunately, the drugs lead him into a hallucination, where he becomes a fascist dictator, setting an army of brown shirts against audience members that he finds to be unworthy. As he starts emerging from the hallucination, he realizes what he's done, and he places himself on trial, where the judge orders the wall to be torn down. Musically, the album ends in such a way that it could be conceivably rejoined to the beginning, suggesting that there's an ongoing cycle going on. And the entire thing is pulled together by the title track, Another Brick in the Wall, which is presented in three parts. Each part has a similar tune and lyrical structure, but as the album progresses to each part, the singer becomes louder and angrier. So in part one, he's kind of sad and resigned. Shortly after this, we move into part two, where Pink is a schoolboy and feeling a little bit more defiant. Finally, we get to part three, which takes place after the breakdown in the hotel room. He's sad, he's angry, he's defiant, and it's at this point that Pink decides to put the last few bricks in his wall. This room in the bakery. Thought you'd like to know. I don't need no 
Now the Wall is a double album, and as I mentioned, this three-part song ties the whole thing together, even though we're barely out of side two. But that doesn't really matter because the rest of the album is dedicated to the steps that bring the whole thing down. The song itself is about the construction of the wall. But let's concentrate on part two, which is the first single to come from the album and became Pink Floyd's only number one hit in the United States, the UK, and many countries around the world. There are two big differences between this track and the other two, and both of those differences can be attributed to Bob Ezrin. The first would be the beat of the song, which has a little bit of a disco flavor to it. Ezrin was a, ba- a fan of the band Chic, and he suggested to David Gilmour that they set the song to a disco beat and encourage Gilmour to uh, visit a couple of clubs and see what they're doing with disco music. Gilmour took his advice, went to the clubs. He didn't really like what he heard, though, in the clubs, but he agreed to add the beat to one of the parts to make it a little bit more catchy. The rest of the band was resistant as well, but Waters kind of let Ezrin have his head to play around with the song for a while. Ezrin added the disco beat and thought he had something going on, but he also thought the song needed to be longer with two verses and two choruses rather than the one of each that it had. And here's where Ezrin's other idea comes into play. Because the song is about school children, Ezrin lifted an idea uh, that he used in Alice Cooper's School's Out, where a children's choir sang part of the song. He went to the Islington Green School, which was close to the studio where he was working, and he had the school chorus come in to sing the second verse and the chorus of the record. Now, when Roger Waters heard the new version afterward, he was completely turned around on the whole thing. He realized this is truly going to work. David Gilmour is still skeptical, but he did agree that the song still sounded like a Pink Floyd track, so he was on board. Now, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding the song, as it turned out. I mean, sure, teachers didn't really like the surface anti-education theme, which I get when the song is presented without context. But the other problem is that the Islington Chorus wasn't paid for their work. Eventually, they received a lump payment of a thousand pounds, a platinum record, and some recording time in his studio, but all of that came several years later. And in a related event, in 1994, uh, I'm sorry, in 2004, a royalties agent named Peter Rowan recognized that under a copyright law from 1996, the chorus members were eligible for royalties based on broadcasts. So he went to a website called Friends United and tracked down the choir members, who by then were in their 30s to put in a claim for royalties. Supposedly, Rowan was more interested in a reunion of the choir than he was in the money, but you can make that call. Now, there are two versions of the song out there. One is the single version, which has a nice, clean, little little introduction before moving into that first verse. Right? And the other one is a sudden cut from the previous track called The Happiest Days of Our Lives. So that's the end of Happiest Days. And there's the beginning of another brick. Nowadays, since radio stations often work from the album cuts, they usually play Happiest Days and Another Brick Part 2 together because the single version isn't broadly available anymore. 
Another Brick Part 2 just segues into the final track on the side called Mother, but it's easier to fade the song there than it is to come in on the sudden cut. And finally, just because it took me forever to decode what was going on, I'm going to give you a little boost to those of you who have not been able to figure out what the adults are saying in the song. First, all of the voices are provided by Roger Waters, who has been quoted as saying he's pretty good at doing mad Scotsmen and high court judges. So let's go with the radio airplay, which starts with Happiest Days of Our Lives, which opens with an adult shouting. Okay, so what he's saying is, you, yes you, stand still, laddie. And now we move to the end of the track, and we hear this. Now, everyone can hear the meat and pudding thing, but in the background, we're also hearing someone shouting, wrong, do it again, over and over. And then finally, as it fades out altogether to segue into Mother, that original shout from the first track comes back, but he's added something. Now it's you. Yes, you behind the bike sheds. Stand still, laddie. Okay, it's time to answer this week's trivia question. Back on page two, I noted that the Queen song Bohemian Rhapsody has made it to the Hot 100 three times since its original release, but another song has done it four times. That song is by Prince, and it's his song 1999. In October of 1982, it first reached the chart, and it peaked at number 44 by December. Then it dropped off the chart for a few months, but when Little Red Corvette became his first top 10 hit, 1999 re-entered the chart in June of 1983, and it reached number 12. Then, of course, in January of 1999, the song came back again for a single week at the number 40 position. That one came as a little bit of a surprise for me, because only because I thought it would have charted in December rather than January. Okay, what do I know? And the fourth time we saw 1999 on the Billboard Singles Chart was in May of 2016, just a few weeks after Prince's death. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And, of course... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is to come back to Shel Silverstein for part two of that story, okay? Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you then. Yeah.